Hello, everyone. You gonna say hi back or you just stare at me? You're like, we already did four times. Okay, sorry. Okay, good to see you all. Um, it's where you say, it's good to see you too, Father. Can't tell I'm an insecure soul. Okay, we got a lot to cover tonight, um, as always. So let's pray and we're gonna get, we're gonna get rolling. Um, well, we'll talk about this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we bless you and praise you tonight. Um, Jesus, we give you our days, whatever's been going on. And uh, Lord, we pray, I pray right now for this uh, house build that's in our Colorado uh, committee happening right now and all the testimonies going on. Lord, I pray that your will would be done there. Uh, I pray that this bill would be defeated. Uh, but I pray especially tonight you would bless our conversation and our topic. Uh, and we give this time to you through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I know we haven't gotten there yet. Do you guys all know about the bill that's in the house right now? It's a big deal. Um, so there's a bill in the Colorado legislature that uh, was going before the today. I think it was at 1 o'clock today maybe 1.30, and there have been so many people that have showed up in opposition to it, and there's, they all get to testify. So they have like 400 people who are testifying. It sounds, I don't know for sure, we'll have to find out tomorrow in the news. It sounds like the overwhelming majority who are there are protesting against it, which is usually the case, right? If you're like against something, you're more likely to go protest than if you're for. But... Um, <laughs> The Catholic Church is really opposed to this bill. And we'll get there. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but basically it's a bill that requires a certain view of sex education to be mandated at all uh, Colorado public schools and charter schools. And if you don't use their system, you have to do nothing at all. Um, I know a lot of you have a lot of questions about the church's teaching. That's like the controversial stuff, right? Like, homosexuality, transgenderism, that's the main thing in debate tonight at the legislature, and we'll get to all that. Um, so I don't really know why I bring it up, except that to tell you to wait. Okay, last week was um, a lot, right? I love what we did last week. I love teaching that, but I want to pause before we're going to continue about the Eucharist tonight, and... Um, I want to pause first and just ask if you guys have questions from last week. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, is, is the actual Eucharist made in like one plant? Or like, where does the actual Eucharist Yeah, is that weird? Is the Eucharist made in one plant? No. Um, all you have to have, the, the, the bishops have regula regulations around the bread and wine used at Mass. Basically, what the regulations are about are that it has to be bread and wine and not too, like, fancy schmancy. So we don't want, like, Cinnabons, you know, at Mass. Like, that's part of it. And so you can make them anywhere as long. We could make it at Lourdes if we wanted to, but you just have to follow the rules that the bishops have laid out that these, this is actual bread. It's not something else. And then the place we get ours, if you're curious, <clears throat> we get ours from a group of nuns. And that's part of how they support themselves in their religious life. It's a Benedictine abbey. Um, and they make 
the bread for mass, and they, it's really beautiful. It's kind of a, it kind of seems like fitting for nuns, right? You're like, I knew it. I knew it was the nuns. So we, that's who we buy it from. We used to buy it just from kind of a more commercial church supply store. But we said, you know what? We want to support these sisters. And we actually called this church supply store, and they said, we agree. Happy to see you support them. So that was kind of cool. Okay. Great. That's a real, I'm really glad you asked that question. So where in the Bible does it mandate that priests will be the one who will carry out the Eucharist? And it's at the Last Supper. And if you remember last time, we talked about in Exodus chapter 12 on the night of Passover, right? Well, when Moses gives the instructions for Passover in Exodus chapter 12, he says that the Jews are supposed to do this in perpetuity, as a memorial, right? And the, the word there is zikaron in Hebrew. And basically, if you were here last week, we, we did talk about this, but not about the priesthood specifically. But what we did is, in, in for instance, Luke 22, or any of the Last Supper accounts, Jesus says when we hear at Mass every week, or if you go every day, like me, uh, Jesus says after the chalice, he says, do this in right, memory of me. Do this in memory. <clears throat> and the, 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 New Te- or the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, right? And so this is a Hebrew word, zikaron. The New Testament is written in Greek, so the Greek word is anemnesis. And anemnesis is the, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word zikaron. I, I should have brought this book tonight, <clears throat> but here's kind of a cool fact. The idea that when Jesus says, do this in memory of me, that that means that he's telling the apostles that they're to, they're to continue this as the new sacrifice is basically not debated by New Testament scholars. It's, it's almost universally held that that is what that means. There's a long history to this, but so, so, how, so why doesn't everybody believe this? Well, there's a long history. There's a great book about this. But anyway, the, um, what happened is that biblical scholarship got weird in the 18th and 19th centuries. And most Protestant scholars don't believe that any of the words that happened at the Last Testament were ever spoken by Jesus. Uh, and, they, and there's reasons, the reasons they think that are wrong, but I don't want to get too deep into it. But that's where the priesthood comes from. And so the new sacrifice of the New Testament, even there's a famous, if you're a scholarly person, I never know like, do I give you guys like the answer that's kind of like the high level or do we get in the weeds? And I, I never know. So I try to do the balance thing. There's a, for instance, even like a Jewish scholar, a guy named Jacob Neusner, who is one of the top Jewish scholars of the last generation, not a Christian. He just says, just flat out, he says, obviously the New Testament is the new sacrifice for Christian, or the um, Last Supper is the new sacrifice for Christians, which, is, which Jesus clearly meant to replace the temple. 
So there's a new temple, there's a new sacrifice, and Jesus tells the apostles at the Last Supper, do this in memory of me. And the last place it kind of puts it in the coffin for me is that um, universally the early church believed that the 12 apostles were the, were the first priests of the new covenant. Universally. And we talked last week, if, if you remember, there was a handout and there's a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. And they talk about this. And we, we've talked about it before, so, so this is a good time to talk about this with priesthood. So, well, here's what Catholics believe. And if you read that quote, um, I think we're printing more of them off, actually. Saying, uh, there's more of those, the double-sided ones. Okay. If you didn't get one last week, where, they're over on the table. Is that right? Yeah, do you want to help us out with that, Mary? So here's the, here's the thing. You might say, okay, well, Father Brian, like, how does this work? This is one of the things that is so, so, so important for Catholics and for early, the early church, and they talk about it a fair amount, is this thing we've talked about before. They call it apostolic succession. It's already happening in the New Testament. Yeah. Oh, no, that's for the handout. Okay. Okay. If you have a question for me, raise both of your hands. Okay. If you need a handout, raise one. So here, here's the point is that what is it? There's a crazy thing where if you, if you go to mass on Sunday, if you become a Catholic and you believe this, right, which I think is the most powerful thing on earth, but it's a little weird, right? If you go to, to work on Monday and your colleagues say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? You're like, oh, you know, I went and hang out with this guy who believes that he can turn bread into a flesh of a man who died 2,000 years ago. They're like, okay, I think something's off on the printer for me. Talk to you later. That, but, but we believe that, right? And the early church believed that. But here's the thing. You don't just get that power. So what the early church believed was that Jesus gave that authority to the 12 apostles, right? And then in the New Testament, this is already happening. And the early church tells us that the only way you can be a priest is if this is how it happened. Is that those 12 then ordained others whom we call bishops, That is already in the New Testament. That's present in the letters of Timothy and Titus and other places in the New Testament already. Now here's the, so the question that I'm getting at with priesthood is, the early church tells us and the Catholic church still teaches that it's not just that, hey, I believe it's true that the Eucharist is the body of Christ and that just makes it happen. The only way you can have a valid Eucharist where the bread actually turns to the flesh of Jesus is if it falls in this line of authority. Why? Because none of us have that power. The only one who does is Jesus. And so we call that apostolic succession. So in church history, I was ordained by Archbishop 
Charles Chaput, who is objectively the best bishop of this age. He's amazing. But Archbishop Chaput was ordained by another bishop. And what happens is you can trace those. If you go, someday when we go to Rome, we'll go to St. I think it's St. John, St. John Lateran that has those. I think it's St. John Lateran. It traces every single pope in history back to St. Peter. It's amazing. Every single one. And then it spawns these weird conspiracy theories because there's only so much room in that church. And so there's like four spots left. And the kind of the crazies are like, FB, there's four spots. Like four more popes, man. And I'm like, no, they're going to open up that wall over there. (laughs) But here, did you see that point? So St. Justin, so like today, and here's the point, I guess, just to say really clearly. So today there are other Christians who believe in Eucharist the way the Catholics do. Kind mo- there are others. But if they don't have this, it's not the real thing. Most Christians who are not Catholics, they don't believe the same thing about the Eucharist. They think it's just a symbol. It's not really Jesus' body. It's just a symbol. And we agree with them. When you do it, we believe it's just a symbol. We believe when we do it, it's, it actually is the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, and that's what he meant by it, etc., etc., etc. There are some people, and the best a- example of this is Anglicans. Anglicans, some of the high church Anglicans, they say we have the same thing as Catholics. And we say, no, they don't. Because they broke off from this. Right? Just because I think something's true doesn't mean I have the authority to do it. Right? Just because I'm like, oh, wow, that makes sense. Now I'm going to, if you guys tonight are like, if you go home, you're like, man, I really believe that that really is the body of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go do that in my house. That's obviously an extreme caricature, but that's something like what the church believes, is that you can't just go do it. You have to be ordained in the authority that comes from Jesus himself. One last piece of that, this is a little confusing. There are other Christians outside the Catholic church who do have valid sacraments, like the Orthodox Um, But that's a little bit in the weeds. If you have questions about that, we can talk about that. Okay. Pause. Did that make any sense? This means yes. This means no. Okay, question. Well, I've got my four-step plan. No, just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, how do you become a pope? Right, how do you become a pope? So this should go without saying, I don't have to say this, but the first thing I would say is you shouldn't want to become pope, right? Jesus is very clear that what, what priesthood's about and what being a bishop or especially the pope is about is about laying your life down. One quick story on that. This is how we never get through anything in our CIA. Um, but if you, went, if you go to the Vatican, you all have heard of, this, of the um, Sistine Chapel, right? Right across from the Sistine Chapel is another chapel that Michelangelo did. And it's called the Pauline Chapel. And it has these two frescoes in that chapel. They're giant. And on one side is a giant fresco of St. Paul in his conversion. The other side is a giant fresco of St. Peter being nailed to his cross. And if you weren't here when we talked about that, St. Peter died by being crucified upside down where St. Peter's square is right now. 
Why is that there? Well, when popes are elected today, and in Michelangelo's time when popes were elected, that's the first place they go. And it's, it's amazing. When you go into that chapel, St. Peter is looking out of the painting at you. And a cardinal of the church took uh, my community and I on a tour here in that chapel. And it was, it was like, it was such a beautiful moment. And he said, Michelangelo knew that we needed good popes. And what he, he painted this and he knew that the popes, right after they were elected, would be in this room. And it's almost like Peter's looking out at the man who's just been elected pope and saying, do you realize how you're called to give your life? Right, to lay it down. Okay, but how does it happen? So to be a bishop, you must be a priest. And then what happens is in the, in the church, we have, we have the pope, right? The hierarchy goes pope. For the clergy, it goes pope. Uh, cardinals. Bishops. My old rector of the seminary, he used to joke. He would say the hierarchy of the church goes pope, cardinal, bishops, lay people, deacons, dogs, priests. He would always say that, which I thought it was funny. Um, but then it goes priests, right? Um, the cardinals do not have to exist. So, so as Jesus instituted the hierarchy, it's really pope, bishop, priests, and deacons. That's how it is in the New Testament. Cardinals would happen, and they happened because as the church became this worldwide organization, what happens is that bishops elect a pope. And the, and the popes are chosen from bishops. But as the church exploded and grew, grew worldwide, it's really, really hard to elect a pope from 5,000 different people. So what they did is they created bishops who kind of are, are distinguished. And, they have a, and from the cardinals, there's a vote. And that's what the white smoke is. When you see a new pope there in St. Peter's, the white smoke comes out. That means we're really up on technology in the church. So they'll, they'll put smoke out. And if it's like, I forget, if it's like red smoke, it means that the, the vote didn't go well and they didn't elect anybody. If they have white smoke, it means there's a new pope. So that's how it happens. They're chosen from the cardinals and they vote on that. Let's go with Gina first and Steve. Pope Francis eliminated Monsignors, which is like my favorite decision he's made. I love it. Monsignors are made up. I don't know when they came in. And whoever made them up deserves, you know, a shot to the face. Um, <laughs> sorry. Why do you go here for RCIA? I don't know. So Monsignors, Monsignors, again, is an honorary title for a priest. But it gets it backwards, right? Like priests are not supposed to seek honors. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, or John 10, in John 10, the 12 apostles are debating about who's the best, which priests do. We're total jerks. And like Dante in his purgatory, the sin that priests are in purgatory for is envy. And it's totally true. Um, priests are prone to that. I know you're not because you're perfect. Don't judge me. So anyway, Monsignors were invented at some point to kind of have an honor for priests, and all it does is create jealousies. It's a terrible idea. So Pope Francis got rid of it. And so people who were creating Monsignors before Pope Francis can still be called that, but there's no new ones. And I was like, that is like such a good decision. 
Love that. Steve. Oh, sorry. Is that on the same point? Yeah. Then follow up. Yeah. Let's punt on that. No, he can't. He did not change that. There's a, so can priests be married, right, is the question. So we're going to talk about that when we talk about priestly celibacy because that's a huge point. Um, I am not available. I'm just, you knew I had to say that. Um, we'll talk about that. Why are priests celibate? Why can't they get married? It's a really important question, and we'll talk about that. Steve. No, they don't represent necessarily. Usually the way it works is that, and not always, but usually the way it works is major cities. If you're named the archbishop of that city, you're almost certainly going to become a cardinal. You don't have to be. The pope could change that. But so that's kind of just how, again, people say, can anything in the Catholic Church change? Absolutely. There's certain things that the church invented because we had to for organization. So it's kind of like this. Let me make an analogy this way. An, a law of human nature is that we should, like, let's just say of driving. A good law of driving that respects human nature is we shouldn't put other people's lives in danger. Right? That should never change. But isn't it true that as cars get safer and, and roads are expanded, that, the speed, that what it means to keep other people's lives safe, that the speed limit could change? right? People could say, oh, you know what? We actually feel like it's safe now for there to be a 75 mile an hour speed limit. That can change, but the principle that you shouldn't endanger other people's lives, that principle cannot. Something similar here. So <clears throat> the, the, Jesus established a hierarchy of the church. He just did. But the, the church said, we need a way that's easier to, to like elect popes. So cardinals actually are not over bishops. They're not. They have no authority over bishops. Zero. It was literally just a way to help elect popes and make it easier, make the process work smooth, more smoothly. So that could change tomorrow. Pope Francis could come out tomorrow and say, we're not going to elect popes to the cardinals anymore. We're going to find a different way. And that would be perfectly legitimate. But he could not change this, the pope, bishops, priests, and deacons. He can't do that. Okay, one more follow-up. Ten, something like that, like ten cardinals in the U.S., something like that. They hear first, then Mary, yeah. That's okay. Yes, it's true. Okay. <clears throat> Your guys' fault, we never get anywhere. Just want to name it. <laughs> um, so in the Old Testament, and this is really good. It's good that we're talking about this because we're going to have to talk about it at some point anyways. So... In the Old Testament, right, Christ doesn't abolish the Old Testament. He fulfills it, right? We did all that stuff with the Exodus. So get this. So in the Old Testament, Moses has, um, he has this group of elders. Does anybody know how many elders he has under him? Nope, good guess, not 12. I know, I guess like the like biblical number, it's seven, three. No, good guess, but no. He has 72. 
you have 72 elders, right? Um, and then within those, he's got 12 heads of tribes. And then within the 12, there's three in Moses' inner circle. Um, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Again, st- I'm telling you guys, you should write these down when you have kids. You have kids and you'll be like, why do we not write down those names from RCIA? Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. I'm available. Jesus, guess what? When Jesus is in the Gospels, one of the things he does, guess how many um, of his of disciples Jesus has? I'll give you a hint. It's a number on the board. 72. Jesus has 72 disciples. Then he has under that, right? He has 12 apostles. Guess what else he has? He has an inner circle of three, which are who? Peter, James, and John. And important moments in Jesus' life he takes those three and those three only. When he raises the widow of Nain, or I'm sorry, when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, he only takes those three. When he goes up the Mount of Transfiguration, it's only those three. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he only has those three. Jesus does not, he does not destroy the Old Testament. He fulfills it. Why did I get on this? What was the question? Why are we priests? Because Within this schema, if you look at Exodus 19.6, the entire people of Israel is a priestly people. And St. Peter quotes that in 1 Peter, I think it's 3. So you write write in your Bible so you don't have to remember every verse. Um, So in Exodus 19.6, God says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, sorry, I was like, what is going on? First Peter 2.9, and we'll explain what this means. Uh, in First Peter 2.9, um, it says, but you, the Christian people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I hope we're going to talk about this tonight. But here's what it means. What, what, does, a priest, what does a priest do? This is why I get a thousand calls and people say, I need to meet with Father Brian this afternoon. And Mary's like, he's available in a month. And you're like, what do you mean? Priests don't do anything. They're like, what do you mean he's not available today? Because people don't know what priests do. <laughs> what does a priest do? Like, what, what's my job? Like, aside from, like, my tasks. I'm not talking about my emails or my building committee. What's my job? Okay, preach the gospel. What else? Offer sacrifice. What? Pastoral care. Sacraments. Bless marriages. Okay, guess what? Almost all of those things you are called to do. In a different way from me. But think of it, here, the best way to explain this is the word for, so you have a holy nation here. You have a, a priestly people. Can we just say PP? Priestly people. 
No, funny story about that. My brother, when I was discerning priesthood, <clears throat> I didn't know this, but I, he invited me out one night with his coworkers for drinks. And I was out with his coworkers, and they were like, hey, Sean, is this the PP? And I was like, what? Like, what the hell are you calling me? You want to fight? I will fight you right now. And my brother referred to me in his office as the potential priest. So his office just started being like, how's the PP? You know? Well, priestly people, okay. Here's, here's how to explain this. What a pri- and here's how I would characterize this. A priest offers sacrifice. We're going to talk about this tonight. When you go to Mass, every single Mass, the priest says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. A priestly people offer sacrifice. Someone said, preach the gospel. The Second Vatican Council teaches that my job is my priesthood is for you. Right? My priesthood is not for me, it's for you, but your priesthood is for the world. Because if I, like I thought about like tonight, there's this bill in the house. If I show up there in my collar, I'm written off. Right? I can't go to your office building. Wouldn't it be kind of fun sometime though? If you're like, hey guys, I, um, I know it's bringing your like, kid to work day, but I brought my priest. And uh, hey, this is Father Brian. And I'm like, repent and believe in the God. That'd be awesome. <laughs> but you can't do that. So my job is to build you up. Your job is to, preach, is to bring the gospel to others. So the Latin word for priest, one of them, is pontifex. And it's where we get the, the word pontiff. Sometimes you'll hear the Pope called the pontiff. And the literal word means a bridge builder. And I love describing priesthood this way. The job of a priest is that what most, I'm convinced that most people, or at least a lot of people frequently feel this way. I think most. I certainly did. People feel like there's God and there's me. And in between, there's this big chasm. And here's what a good priest does. A good priest loves God like crazy and he loves his people and they know it. And what people say is they say, you know, I don't, I don't know that I feel that close to God, but if Father Brian is close to God, maybe, maybe I could be. So a priest is someone who builds bridges. And that's what Jesus did, right? He, he made it possible for us to have union with God. And so you guys, the Christian people, are a priestly people because guess what? People don't want to talk to me. You know, and they know, you know it's true. And people in your office, they would find, like, some of my friends, they'll be like, um, they'll tell their other friends, they'll be like, oh yeah, my friend, Father Brian. They're like, you're friends with the priest? You know, they're like, he's not available. All right, no, just kidding. But you see my point, right? If you though, if people expect Christians to be judgmental, arrogant, um, unintelligent, whatever, whatever, whatever. But if they meet you and you're not those things, you're a loving person. You seem to have direction in your life. You have, you have certain answers about certain things. You have a joy. You can become a bridge for other people to find God.
And that's what it means to be a, a priest. Okay, how are you doing? Do you guys want to break or no? Who wants to break? Uh, Mary, your question. Yes. So bishop versus archbishop. It's very similar to that thing about a cardinal. They do not have to be archbishops. But again, it's just it's a it's kind of like the church needed certain things just to for things to run well, right? The Bible doesn't say the speed limit on C470 should be 65 miles an hour. Right? Some people think that it owned the Bible answers everything. No, it doesn't. You need you need things, the church is there to help make things run well. Sometimes it doesn't do the best job. I should say that too. But anyway, so an archbishop, all an archbishop is, uh, arhe, well, how do you, I don't know how to write that in English. But where we get the word arch um, is from the Greek word arhe. Um, I don't know why I'm holding this. But <clears throat> arhe just means head or ruler. So another word that that's used for is architect. Architect's a Greek word. Arhe is ruler. Tekton is a craftsman. It's actually what Jesus is called in the New Testament. When they say he's a carpenter, they call him the son of the tekton. And which, it could be a carpenter, but it's a broader word than that, which is fun. Sometime we'll talk about that, because I don't think Jesus was a carpenter, nor do I think Joseph was. Um, but we'll talk about that. Um, so archbishops, all it's saying, they're just bigger cities. They, they don't have any authority over other bishops. So in Denver, we're just a bigger city. So we have an archbishop. Carter Springs isn't as big as Denver. They just have a bishop. But they're actually totally equal in church theology. Archbishop Shaphew does not have authority over Bishop Sheridan at all. But he has more resources because he has a bigger city, and that helps things kind of be organized in an easier way. Okay, yeah, Alex. The Pope pool? I love that. <laughs> yeah. I know what you're saying. The pool of possible popes. Yes. The field of possible popes. Well, it's kind of like the primaries, right? It's like you've got the Democratic and the Republican primary, and they're like, no. How does that work? Base, it's from the cardinals, and so the Pope can name cardinals. But generally, like, you know, New York City... Once, if you're made the bishop of New York City, you're going to be a cardinal. So that doesn't have to be the case, but it, it, that's just kind of the way we've done things. So in New York City, you have Cardinal Dolan. And the way we've set up kind of the house rules right now is anyone who's a cardinal is part of the College of Cardinals. And the cardinals can elect any priest, bishop, or pope to the papacy. And they can elect anyone. But almost certainly it's going to be someone from the cardinals because they're the most well-known. And so if you're in that smaller group, you just tend to say, I know this person. I know they love the church. I know they love God. This person would be a good pope as opposed to them saying, you know what, there's this great, great priest in Denver. And I think, you know, it's a little bold, doesn't speak Italian, but you know, we should elect Father Sam Moorhead to be the pope. You know, that. They don't do that. They could. All right, any last questions before we talk about our main topic? Okay, 34 archbishops. Okay, just five cardinals. Okay. There you have it.
Okay, how are you guys doing? Should we take a two-minute break? Who thinks we should take a break? Raise your hand. All right, let's just do it. Two-minute break. There you go. Okay, everybody. I'm sorry to be doing so much tonight, but we, we're going to keep moving here. So I want to do one biblical story, and then uh, after that, we're going to talk about some concrete things with the Mass. So you should have a handout that says the walk to Emmaus at the top. Is that what it says? Yep. If you're missing one, uh, Miranda has extra. Does anybody need it? One of the Luke 24. Told you. Okay. So this is one of my two favorite resurrection stories. This one and there's one in John 21. They're so good. Okay, so Luke 24 is a resurrection story that's about the Eucharist. And it's so powerful. Okay, so let's, let's read it quickly. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other about all these things that had happened, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But they were from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? Don't you love when Jesus tricks you? What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? 
And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, who said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Okay, really, this, this gospel story is going to blow your freaking mind. I love this story. It is so powerful. Okay, a couple of things I just want to note before we, we get the main thing. They talk about the women who came and reported to the apostles that Jesus was risen. Just a cool fact about this. In the ancient world, women are not allowed to be witnesses. And their testimony is not held up in court. And the Gospels all tell us that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Isn't that so cool? I love that. I love that. It's so beautiful. Okay, one more thing is that it talks about the road. And the, the two go back to Jerusalem. And they tell the apostles what had happened to them on the road. Does your say road? Did it say road in your translation? Yeah. Well, that word in Greek is hodas. And it does mean road. But the normal way it's translated is the way. So why is that important? Does anybody remember? Right? That's the name, that's the first name for Christianity, is the way. So if you're an early Christian, you're not reading a translation. You're hearing this in the Greek. That's the word for Christianity. Okay, so if these two people, these two disciples, is this, this is a story about being on the way, but something's wrong about that. And this, this, this question might be a little bit of read my mind. But what's wrong with, with their kind of journey on the way? That's a sign it was a bad question. Ben? Yeah, good. Thank you. You just validated me as a, as a teacher and a father. Thank you. Uh, they're, not, they're walking away from the Christian community. They're leaving Christianity. And so they were in Jerusalem, and notice, do you guys have verse numbers on there? Notice in verse uh, 21, they're telling Jesus about everything that's happened to him, and they say, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned and crucified him. And listen, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Notice how their hope is in the past tense. They used to hope that Jesus was the Redeemer and their hopes have now passed because he was crucified. Um, one more thing. What day of the week is this? What is it? No, I don't mean tonight. In the story. I would ask that though. What is it? Sunday. This is Easter Sunday. Okay? That's really important. This is Easter Sunday. The very first Easter. Okay, so it's Easter Sunday. They're walking away. Their hope is in the past tense. These are ex-Christians. That's who this is. Okay. So without getting too deep into it, so here, a couple things to notice. How do we know this is a story about the Eucharist? 
Okay, at the very end, they tell the apostles, right, that how, how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. In Acts 2.42, we're going to be told that that is at the center of the Christian life. It's told that the early Christians, it said, they gathered for prayers, fellowship, to listen to the uh, teaching of the apostles, and for the breaking of the bread. And that becomes an a idiom in early Christianity for Eucharist. How else? How else do we see hints that this is about the Eucharist? Good. So, in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Those four verbs, that and that phrase, is the exact phrase Jesus uses at the Last Supper. Word for word. Right? While he was at supper, he took the bread, he blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, so Luke, is, Luke wants us to hear that. Right? There's this echo there. Okay, so I'm just going to do this fast because I could spend, I could try to drag this out, but I'm just going to do it fast. Okay. So the, what the early Christians see, and what I want to propose to you, is that this is just like the Mass. So at the Mass, when you go, there's two broad halves, two broad parts to the Mass. We call the first one the Liturgy of the Word. And the second one we call the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And in the first half, we read Scripture. We confess our sins. We sing the Gloria. And then we read um, four Scripture passages. Right? Old Testament, Responsorial Psalm, New Testament, Gospel. And then hopefully the priest explains what they actually mean. Right? Now Jesus, here in verse 26, or 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, liturgy of the word. That's what it's supposed to be. I will tell you, and I work very hard at that, um, and every priest should. Every priest should work very hard and take that very seriously. Okay, the second half, those that Eucharist. Now here's where it gets cool. Okay, so this, these two disciples are walking to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. They get there, and it seems like they have a place that they have in Emmaus. Now what's odd about that? Why would it be odd for these two to have a place in Emmaus? I know this is hard. Oh, yeah, Jesus calls, you know, the disciples to a pretty radical life of kind of poverty. Okay, that's good. I love it when people don't get it because then I get to give the answer. It makes me feel good. 
because I'm a prideful, prideful man. Um, here's what I want to propose to you. And this is not me. N.T. Wright, who is broadly believed to be the top scripture scholar in the world, proposes this in, a, in one of his most important books. What I want to propose to you is that when you read this story, you assume it's two men. Right? Did you think that? This is a married couple. And here's how we know that. Luke loves to frame things. And so at the, at the beginning of his gospel, for instance, here's one easy one. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 is a priest and he goes into the temple and he's supposed to come out and he's supposed to bless the people. But he's silenced because he didn't believe God, so he can't give a blessing. The gospel of Luke ends with Jesus, who is the true high priest, blessing the whole world. And scholars have long noticed that's meant to be read in parallel. The beginning of Luke's gospel begins with a story right, of couples. You have Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then you have Mary and Joseph. And here at the end, it would be fitting, scholars have seen this, it would be fitting if this was a married couple. One of the two disciples is named. Did you see who it was? Cleopas, right? I can't spell. It's Cleopas. So that that's one of the two. In John nineteen twenty-five, see I wrote it up here, so I wouldn't forget. In John nineteen twenty-five, we're told that standing underneath the cross of Jesus Christ are Saint John the Apostle, Mary the Mother of God, Mary. Uh, Magdalene and Mary of Cleophas. I'm sorry, Mary of Clopas. Now, you're like, well, those are two different names. But they're not. This word is Aramaic, and that is the Greek translation. Furthermore, Cleopas is an uncommon name in the ancient world. In ancient Israel, it's extremely uncommon. There's a guy named, I, I think I've told you about this book before. There's a guy named Richard Baca, who's done an exhaustive study of all, of all names in the time of Christ. That's, that's like, sounds like a horrible project. But he, doesn't that sound awful? He has this like table in this book of like hundreds and hundreds of names. He's like, this name is listed like 74 times. And this name, I'm like, dude, I'm glad you did that, but I would hate my life, all right? Cleopas is an extraordinarily rare name. And what are the odds that at the crucifixion, there's a woman named Mary who's married to a Cleopas, and there's a different Cleopas walking on Easter Sunday from, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, who was a Christian. Highly unlikely that those are two different people. This is a married couple. It gets better. I love this. Oh, this is so cool. So, 
last time when we talked about Eucharist, we talked about how all these parallels, right? We talked about um, Jesus and Moses going back to the Old Testament, but we also talked about Jesus and Adam. Remember this? Okay, well, here's the thing. So it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday when God created the world. Let there be light. That was on a Sunday, right? And all of the Easter stories evoke the beginning of the world, new creation. In John chapter 21, I think it's in 21, it's either 20 or 21, when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb of Jesus, John makes this big deal. He says, it's the first day of the week, right? Which is supposed to be, it's Sunday. It's the day when God created the world. And she goes to find Jesus and she can't find him, but she actually does. And she mistakes him for who? For the gardener. Because it's the new Eden, right? There's a new humanity. There's a new creation. There's a new start to the world on Easter Sunday. So here's, here's the really cool thing. So in the, in the Garden of Eden, right? We talked about this last time. There are two trees that have names. I think we talked about this. I talk so much. I can never remember. Did we talk about this? No, are you serious? Man, you guys suck. Um, okay, there's two trees in the Garden of Eden. I am not available. Um, two trees in the Garden of Eden that have names. Do you remember what they are? Okay, a tree of knowledge. Okay, good. What's the other one? The tree of life. So Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They're, they disobey God's commandment. They're cast out of the garden. And then... In, X, or in Genesis chapter 3, God kicks him out of the garden and we're told that there is a cherubim that guards the doorway to the tree of life or the path to the tree of life lest Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of life. The new t- so there's an old Adam, right? Adam in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15 and all over the place in the New Testament tells us Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new true son of God. He's the one who's the founder, like Adam's the father of humanity. Jesus is the father of a new humanity. The real way to be human is to be born of Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's, there's that tree. There's a tree of life in the New Testament. Do you know what the tree of life is in the New Testament? No one make eye contact. The tree of life in the New Testament is the cross. We did say, I said that or somebody else did? Whatever, I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, it is, that's right, you ever said that? The, tr- the cross is the tree of life. In the book of Revelation, we're told that those, that when, you go, that when you enter the heavenly Jerusalem and you eat of the fruit of the tree of life, you live forever. The tree of life in the New Testament is the cross. So Adam and Eve, they eat of this tree. And what happens when they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge? What happens? Say it again. Yep, and they use another phrase before that. They realize they're naked, but what happened? The language says, and that's right, Steve, but the language in Genesis 3 says they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes were opened. That's the only time in the entire Bible you have a couple whose eyes are opened, except in Luke 24. 
Where is it? Um, oh, it's verse 31. So in 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished out of their sight. The Catholic Church and other churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, have all recognized this, that Christ's death and resurrection reopens paradise. So in the New Testament, there's a tree of life. The, the true tree of life is the cross of Jesus. And the fruit of the tree of life is the Eucharist. I think that is one of the most powerful things in all of Scripture. On Easter Sunday, the day of a new creation, there's a new married couple, there's a new dawn, there's a new start for humanity, and there it is, the tree of life. Okay. Questions? Rebuttals? Complaints? Yeah. Right. So is Adam a failed experiment of God? No. <clears throat> so God knows all things. Great passage for this is Ephesians chapter 1. And basically what it is is that God, God loves humanity, but everything, he, from the very beginning, he always had a plan, and the plan was always Christ. So Adam, right, has free will. God, of course, didn't want him to, choose, to, to sin. He didn't choose for him to sin. But God always knew that in his son, he would make all things new. And by the way, this is one of the most powerful things for me for, for being a Christian, is that we all have the sense that evil is so bad. And in Christianity, the message is not just, well, the world sucks, try to get through it, and then maybe you'll have some really awesome gelato in heaven. The message of Christianity is that God redeems this world. Right? He, he takes broken things and he makes them right. He doesn't just throw them out and say, let's start over. He redeems it from the inside out. Uh, that's one of the reasons Jesus still has his scars after the resurrection. Yeah. Um. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that beautiful? I know, isn't it true? And, and here's the good news, though, is like, my, like, Colossians 1 has this wonderful hymn about the riches of Christ. And just the, the depth and the profundity. And most people, when you guys leave RCIA, here's my thing. If you become Catholic, I hope you do. Um, but when you become Catholic, a lot of people just kind of stop learning. And I said this on Sunday, but I really mean it. I, I just can't imagine life without continuing to learn more about the faith. I have taught, well, I, did what I just taught you, 
50 times, 75 times, it never gets old. And it always, there's always more to learn. It always goes deeper. It always calls me to a deeper life. And the church right now is waking up from a slumber. We've had 60 years in the Catholic Church. This is another topic for RCIA. Um, we're in a two-year class, two-year class um, about that, about why, like, you're ex- I try to spend so much of my time trying to convince people, I knew you grew up and the church was kind of lame and the music was bad and the homilies were terrible and, like, you never learned anything because that was my experience too. But the church is waking up from that right now. And that that 60 years that we are coming out of right now is not normal in church history. And the church is waking up and it's a hard time, but it's going to be a powerful time. And, and the, the Catholic church is going to remember who she is and it's going to come alive. Okay, other questions? Did I make anybody else mad? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Why, why is it important that Jesus revealed himself to a married couple? Because the whole, the whole plan of God in all of history is marriage. I'm writing that up there so you can see how it's spelled. No, I don't know. I was, every year I'm like, I'm like, marriage. See? No. Um, here's the thing is that the creation story builds. It builds and builds. We did this early in class, right? The creation story builds and the climax of the story is a married couple, right? Which is why every one of us desires communion. We desire marriage. We desire to be loved. We have such, we have, that's written on our hearts. The, the, the Bible begins that way. It ends that way. In Revelation 21, the bride of God, the church, descends from heaven. Right, because the, the greatest mystery of human life is marriage. It's not even earthly marriage, it's really heavenly marriage with God. But why is it important? Because Christ is showing us that he's recreating the world. And the, the climax of the first creation was marriage, and the climax of the second creation is marriage. Which is why I hate being, no, just kidding, I'm not going to say that. I, I love being celibate. Love it. Okay, other questions? We will talk about that. Yeah. 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 So Jesus is unrecognizable. There's a couple reasons off the top of my head. One of them is that Jesus does not just come back to a, this earthly type of life. It's a glorified life. Right? So, so Jesus' body, it's still his body. It's his real body. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. When you are resurrected from the dead, it'll still be your body, but it's, it'll be a glorified body. And so Jesus, after the resurrection, is incapable of suffering. Um, he can appear in different ways. He can pass through walls, it appears. Um, so the first thing is that, this, and I think that's probably the main thing of why he's unrecognizable, which made me think of one more point I wanted to make. When does Jesus disappear in this story? In the breaking of the bread. The church has always interpreted that as that Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension, his presence passes into the sacraments. Right? In Matthew 28, he says, Behold, I am with you always, 
always with you until the end of the age. And here in Luke, Luke's showing us that Jesus is with us in the breaking of the bread. There's so many more stories about this. I mean, maybe we'll do another one next week. There's a great story in Mark, like five and six, I want to say, where the apostles can't understand who Jesus is, and Jesus makes it clear that they can't understand who he is because they can't seem to understand what the bread's about. And there's something about understanding Jesus and understanding the bread that is inseparable. Other questions? Isn't this so powerful? And when you put it all together, brothers, this is one of the things I like. People come to me and they'll be like, Father Brian, show me the Eucharist. And it's, it's great in a class like this because you can do the story from Luke 24, right? You can read John chapter 6. You can talk about the Last Supper. You can talk about the Passover lamb and make all those connections. And then you read the church fathers and they all see this and they say, this is really his flesh. It's really his blood. This is what makes the church. And then you read, you know, the medieval saints and they all see the same thing. And then you read the modern saints and they all say the same thing. And you get what G.K. Chesterton says, where Chesterton says, you know you believe something, not when it makes sense, but when everything makes sense because of it. And I love that, right? I don't believe the Eucharist is because of one of these stories, but when all of them come together, it's, it's like a key that fits a lock. And it's like, wow, how did I not see this before? Okay, Mary Rogers, I want to get, we have 20 minutes. I want to have your opinion. Should we go do that stuff or should I talk about liturgy in general? Okay. Probably. Everything, everything takes longer than 20 minutes. Okay. We're eliminating that from class this year. Okay. Fine, Miranda. Okay. Well, it's not mine, all right? Okay. All right, so we're not doing that because Mary and Miranda are lame. Um, yeah, what I'm talking about, so, so we'll do it next class. We're going to go over to the church side of, you know, it'd be really fun if the church was done and we could do it in the actual church, but close enough. And I'm going to just go through and we're going to walk through the mass and I'll just show you like, what are, why do I wear these weird, one of the kids today was like, are you wearing a white dress? I'm like, well, let's call a spade a spade. <laughs> so kind of, but we'll talk about why do I wear a white robe? Why do I wear vestments? Why do we have what we have in the church? Why do we sit, stand, kneel, sit, stand, kneel? Why? And we'll do. Okay. Yeah. In a church that we went to in Atlanta, they had one of the masses. Actually, they had like a narrator going through the whole mass and describing everything. I don't know if that's like. We could do that. But it was. It was really cool. helpful, probably too. Yeah. I, I know, like that's kind of what you're planning on doing, but it was really cool. Well, in the comment, though, I I I've thought about that. The one thing about having a commentator during mass is I probably can't preach, and that's hard for me. Um, but maybe we'll do that. Okay, well, let's do a few other things. What I do want to do then is I want to talk, let's talk about worship one more time. So we kind of finished last class talking about worship. 
And I just want to hit that. So I want to talk about worship again. Um, I need a little more vino. Um, so, and so here, here's the thing. The Catholic and the Jewish conviction is this. So imagine like, have you ever, here's the way I like to do it. Have you ever bought someone a present that was really something that you wanted them to like? Yeah, totally. One year, one year for my staff back at my last church, I bought them all this Gregorian chant CD that I love. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Father Brian. That was a great, really thoughtful present, right? A really great gift giver is someone, when if you give a great gift and you're, that's your, your like, talent, you think about what the other person, who they are and what they might want, right? I'm terrible at that, but I know people who are really good at that. So what I want to propose to you is that what most people, and I touched on this a little bit last time, what most of us do when we think about worshiping God is we give gifts like that. We turn worship of God into how I felt at church. So I always joke about this. There's, do you guys know Flatirons Church? Anybody? So Flatirons Church is like the largest church in Colorado. They do a lot of really good things. Um, they're a huge evangelical church. Their main church is in um, Lafayette. They have one really close to us, but it, what they do, I've, some of the people from Lourdes went and like checked it out and they like spied it out for me. And they were like, this is what it's like. I'm like, oh, I want to go. But they, they broadcast their main one and they put it on a screen at the one really close, close to us. It's on Downing and Yale. But anyway, so one of the times I was, back when I was a brand new priest, I watched one of their services and the pastor, like, and they, they, at their church, they have, it is a rock concert. They actually play secular music. I've heard the pastor talk about it. They'll play like Red Hot Chili Peppers. And they do that because they, they like want to make people feel comfortable, which is cool. I think that's a great idea. But I was watching one time and they've got this band and it is an amazing band, right? And, you know, the guys are out there just like, they're like so cool, you know, and like, and they've got this, the fog machines are coming on the stage and the pastor ziplined in onto the stage. And, and you know what I thought? I love telling people this. You know, what I th- you know what I thought? My first thought was, I could totally do that. <laughs> like, that would be awesome. Right? And, and what happens is, but this is our culture. Our modern culture has turned worship into entertainment. And I know, and I'm not, I don't mean to pick on them. They do a lot of really good things, but there is that aspect as well. There is an entertainment aspect right now to worship. The Jewish and Christian conviction is that we actually don't know how to worship God. The Exodus story is all about when God brings Israel out of Egypt, it's not to get them free from slavery. It's actually to teach them how to worship it's the whole point of the Exodus story is that Israel learns the high point of the, the Exodus story is when they arrive, it's from chapters 19 to 40, which is at Mount Sinai, which is where they learn how to worship God. And we, again, we made this point last week, but here's, I just want to drill this into you. If you're going to think like a Catholic, you have to understand that you and I don't know what it means to worship God. Just because you think something should look a certain way doesn't mean that's how God does. 
And so Israel is taught in the wilderness how to worship God, and Jews take that with the utmost seriousness. Catholics believe the same thing. We believe the exact same thing. So, I, you know, people in the history of kind of the last 60 years, there's been a lot of people saying like, man, Mass just gets so boring. It's like the same lines over and over. Anybody ever thought that? Yeah. You know what I'm going to say. The rest of you are liars. Or you don't go to Mass. But, we, but most Catholics think that. They're just like, it's always the same. Can we change it up a little bit? And the reason we don't is because worship isn't about us. The Catholic Church believes that worship was instituted by Jesus himself. Right? It, was, it was him who started it. And so we talked about this, but the, the cross is worship. Right? Worship is not like, and we all have, I love it, by the way, when the music's good. I think our musicians at Lords are phenomenal. Uh, I love it when I feel like I'm on with my preaching. I love it when the congregation sings. I love it when things are going the way they should be. And that's important. But it's not, it's not the center. The center is the cross. That's why Catholics don't change. Right? When Jesus says, do this in memory of me, all early Christians understood that as the new sacrifice, the new way to worship God. Okay, so Mass. I think I want to save the rest for next time, honestly. <clears throat> next time what we're going to do is we're going to go step by step. But I think maybe I'll say this last thing and then we'll see if there's any questions. When I went from, am I, and if you've had that attitude of just like, why, like just being bored and like wondering what you're going to get out of a sermon, I have been there. Most of my life prior to priesthood was that way. Um, so I understand that. And I understand that sermons are important, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But once I got, once I understood that mass, when you're at mass, you are at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? That's what anemnesis means, memorial in Greek. Do this in anemnesis of me. Mem do this in memory of me. That word does not mean remember something in the past. That's not what it means. That word means to make present a past event. When you go to Mass, you are at the crucifixion. And when you get that, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. If you get that, right, I don't have to tell you to be reverent in Mass, if you understand that. Because you would never not be. If you understand that when you go to Mass, you really are at Mount Calvary, you're going to get that I'm not supposed to kind of be in like, I mean, I don't really think clothes matter that much at Mass, but it's probably better to not wear like a tank top and like, I don't know, board shorts or whatever. Is that a sin? No. But it's probably not fitting, right? If you understand that when you walk up to receive Jesus, that you're receiving his body that's crucified on the cross, you're probably not going to be on the highway going like, hey, see the Broncos? Some Catholics do that. Drives me up the wall. But, I'm, but, the, but the, the way you fix that is not to tell them to stop doing it. It's to teach them about what the Mass is. People aren't stupid. When they get what the Mass is, they'll understand how you're supposed to behave. If you get this, it'll change everything. And, and the last thing I'll say is, when you go to my Masses and you go to somebody else's, a lot of them, they can feel different. 
I have my own quirks. I know that. <clears throat> but I just want to share with you one last thing. You know at the Mass, when like, um, I'll be up there, and you, some of you might not have experienced this yet, but there's part of the Mass where I will take the bread and I'll pray that prayer of Jesus, right? And I'll speak in his voice, right? Um, take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. And then I elevate it, right? And by the way, that, we'll talk about this next time, that is not me showing you the body of Christ. That's not what that is. That's Jesus offering himself to the Father. That's what that gesture is. Then I kneel behind the altar. Most priests, I kind of bend the rules here. You should know this about me. I'm a rule breaker. Um, the right says the priest genuflex. Now I just can't, it's a quirk I developed earlier in my priesthood, but when I go behind the altar at that point, right, like I, I just kneel. And I do it for, I don't know how long. One of the, one of our parishioners who I just love, she was like, she told me that her first mass at Lourdes, she leaned over to her husband. She was like, is he okay? Like, should somebody go check on him? Because most priests don't do that. Here's why I do that. Because I know I'm at Calvary. I know where I'm at. And that helps me remember. If I just rush through it, it becomes casual and cheap. And the reason I kneel behind the altar that long is because I remember. And I usually say, there's a, there's a line from Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 9, 11 says that when Christ um, entered, uh, entered the true holy place as the high priest of the new and eternal covenant, he went not with the blood of goats or calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I think of that verse almost every Mass because I, in the Old Testament, right, when, you, when the high priest went into the temple, he sacrificed a bull and a goat for sins. And what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus didn't do that. His sacrifice was not a bull or a goat. It was himself. So I don't ever want to get comfortable with it. I don't want to get too familiar with it. I want to kneel there and remember the unbelievably powerful thing that's happening. Um, Okay, that's kind of my sermon for tonight. Questions about anything we covered or anything at all tonight? Yeah, Ben. Um, yeah, good question. So sacramentals. So we have the seven sacraments, which is where we're at in the class right now. Sacramentals are not the same thing. Sacramentals are like are like devotional things that can help you grow in faith, they can change. So the rosary is one, uh, the stations of the cross, holy water, like different things like that. Um, and those aren't sacraments. They're not these things. The main distinction is that sacraments are instituted by Christ, period. Sacramentals are from the church and they're given to us to help us grow in love. Um, so I don't know, am I missing the question, Ben? If we don't know how to pray, how do we know that the Mass is the right thing to do? Oh. Yeah, basically through the authority of the church. How do we know they're good to do? The church is a, is a trustworthy guide. 
you know? And hopefully what's happening in class, I always tell people, so much of my conversion, I started with this defensive stance towards the church because I was like, don't understand it, a bunch of weird things, priests wear black, here they can forgive sin somehow, everything's just kind of weird. I started asking questions and I started getting good answers. I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. And then like I asked another question, I was like, oh, wow, that kind of makes sense. And on and on and on. And I, I hope what happens for you is you're always a thinking Catholic. You also learn to trust the church. And that, for me, that's kind of the answer is that children shouldn't have a skeptical kind of attitude towards their parents. They should, they should trust. You always want to know. You always want to go deeper. But our first stance should be trust. So, yeah, uh, Steve and Katie. Um, how did you get? Oh yeah, yeah. Right. No, that's how the mass. That's what the mass is. So the central part of the mass, the consecration. There's two moments that turn the bread into the flesh of Christ. One of them is the calling down of the Holy Spirit. And this is so cool. When the Holy Spirit falls on things, it transforms them. So uh, Mary, right, in Luke chapter 1, she says, how am I going to be pregnant? I, I have no sexual relationship with a man. And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Therefore, the child to be born of you will be called the Son of, he will be holy, the Son of the Most High. We believe the same thing happens at Mass. And so there's a, there's a time when the priest says, send therefore, O Lord, your spirit. And he always puts his hands out like this. And he's calling on the Holy Spirit to fall on the, on the, on the bread that is not consecrated yet. The other piece that you have to have are the words of Christ. This is my body. This is my blood. And that's what's happening there, is, that the, is the transformation. Mm-hmm. Right. That's okay. It just sounded mean. Yep. Yeah. It's a great question. Yeah, and you didn't sound mean. She said, why, if it's so sacred and so holy, why do we give to second graders? And I think that's a really, it's a question to think about. The main answer is this. So why, why is this so important? There's a thousand reasons we've talked about some of them. And we, but communion, right? All of us want communion. And so why do we give it to children? Well, the main reason is because the, the Eucharist creates the church, which is a family. And so the logic is that we wait until they're of age, the age of reason. By the way, it didn't always used to be that way. And I think good Catholics could say, yeah, it was Pius X. Look at you. There you go. Pius X lowered the age to the age of reason. Didn't used to be that way. It used to be older. And I think you could actually make a good argument for that. And I, I might be on that side because if, if you guys become Catholic, you will be the best Catholics in my church. You will know more about Christianity and what the Catholic faith teaches than 98% of, maybe not at Lourdes, but most places, more than 98% of Catholics in the pews. And so I think there is something to be said for that. 
but I think you could all, someone could also say, well, we want children to be in communion with God and to really have that fullness of communion. But we can also fix the problem by, as they grow, having better ways of reaching children. So, so you, yeah, something like that. Other questions? Yeah. I have a question about breaking bread. Uh-huh. The Bible always seems to talk about breaking the bread. Mm-hmm. When, when you mean no one physically does it, do you mean priests today or do you mean in the, in the Bible? No, today. Mm-hmm. They're already already. So the priest does it with the main host. There's, a, there's kind of what's called, there's called the celebrant's host. So the priest always, he has to break that one, right? And the breaking is the symbol of the breaking of Christ's body, right, on the cross. But yeah, they do that at Mass. <laughs> Yep, or from food from Egypt, the food of Egypt. Okay. Uh, I might have said that. I probably did, but. So is that why the people historically have missed um, Mary, Mary, yeah. Um, is that why they were, it seems like Jesus was present in two moments, in two forms. Yep. In yeah, Jesus, and what's the first way he's present? Well. Just walking with him? Yeah. Yeah. Good. So one point I should have made, which you just kind of made for me, Jesus is present in two different ways in that story, right? So he's present in the word that he speaks to them, and he's walking with them. My, one of my friends who's a total scripture nerd, he always jokes about, wouldn't you have just loved to have heard that sermon? It's like best, the best sermon ever given. And, but all we get is like, he opened the scriptures to them. We're like, man, why can't my pastor do that, <laughs> right? Um, so he is present to them in the Word. Um, but I don't think there's an explicit, Luke 24, I don't think it has an explicit reference to that Exodus 16 story necessarily. The point of the food running out from Egypt, if you remember, and I th- you might remember this, is, is that s- there are s- things that are sacred. And you can't do both. If you're going to eat the bread of Christ, you have to let go of the food of the world. And that's the point of that, the, the food that runs out in Exodus 16. And the, again, the early Christians talk about this, that what do I, with my life, you know, and we all do this, I'm like, Lord, how am I going to find happiness? That can be a metaphor for food. How am I going to be fed? Right, like what is it that brings me alive? What is it that gives meaning to my life? And there's such a temptation for me, always probably will be, to live from what the world gives me, right? And just pride and wealth and, I don't know, prestige and power, pleasure. And that I, there's this temptation that that's what will make me happy. And leaving that behind is really hard. It's really hard. And I still struggle to do it. Um, I still struggle to do that. But when you, when you do that, that's the point of the Exodus story, right? Is that it's, it's fitting and then that's when the Eucharist comes alive. If you, brothers and sisters, I promise you this. If you learn to pray the Mass, and again, we'll do this next time and I'll show you how this is practical when you go to church. But if you learn to pray the Mass and not just watch the Mass and you understand that it's Jesus on the cross and that you're there for that, if you do that, if you try to leave the world behind, Mostly your sins. 
If you say, Lord, this is hard for me, but I'm going to really work on my lust and I'm going to leave that behind. And Lord, this is really hard for me, but I'm going to leave behind my kind of attachment to to money. And I'm really going to work to leave that behind. If you're striving for that, and if you're praying the way that, that I'll hopefully help you see next time, I promise you, you will never. When I started doing that, you know, in my college days, it was so funny. The homilies were still terrible. The music was awful. And I was like, like Luke 24 would come up in the readings and I was studying all this stuff in Bible study. And the priest would be like, oh yeah, so, um, so, you know, I was in the parking lot the other day and, you know, you guys should probably be nice in the parking lot. And I'm like, I'm going to murder you. Right? And I'm like, because I know what Luke 24 is about. And give me that microphone, I'll preach the sermon. Um, I have issues. But, but it didn't matter anymore because I knew what was happening at Mass. I knew that Jesus was being sacrificed and I knew that all that mattered was that I loved him and I loved God through him and that I could worship God through the Eucharist. And it just changed everything. Music was still terrible and I, it was, you know, all those things. So that's my encouragement. We're done tonight. If you want to talk more to me, I will be here next week. What we're going to do is we'll be in the church side We'll start here, but we'll probably go over there and we'll talk about like, why do we sit, stand, kneel? What is this vestment? Why? And you can bring all your questions if you have questions about practical things at Mass. Um, We'll cover those next week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.